I don't really watch a lot of zombie films because in that weird way, I like equate making Shaun of the Dead to the idea of, I like chocolate cake. Okay, now I'm going to make a chocolate cake. Okay, now I'm sick of chocolate cake. <laughs> like So it's like, I don't want to eat chocolate cake ever again. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. If you love movies, you probably love the films of writer-director Edgar Wright. No matter what genre he's working in, horror, action, crime, and however you'd classify Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, Edgar has an instantly recognizable style. His passion for cinema comes through in his joyful use of dynamic camera movement, fast-paced edits, on-screen graphics, and pop songs that act like commentary tracks. He brings all that and more to Last Night in Soho, a mind-bending riff on Italian Jallo films. Edgar sat down with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sayenga to talk about great British horror films, mad scientists, horror musicals, zombies, sequels, and much, much more. So as we're recording this, the trailer for Last Night in Soho was just released. And a lot of people are saying it has the color-saturated look of the original Suspiria. It's funny. It's always interesting when you can tell somebody's, like, um, age. Like, because it's like people either say, like, they say, oh, it's a bit Nick Reffin. Or they say, oh, it's a bit Dario Argento. Or if you're truly correct, it's like... Oh, it's a bit Mario Barber. That said, obviously, I love Dario Argento and I love the original Suspiria. And I think probably I'd seen more Argento films first and then kind of like Mario Barber films. I mean, for a long time, as you well know, like Mario Barber films, at my age, you could probably only see them on VHSs and probably bad VHSs. And so I think a lot of older horror titles have been really um, helped by Blu-ray restorations to sort of see those Mario Barber films kind of like as they would originally be seen, or probably when you see them on a Blu-ray 2K restoration, it's probably better than it was in 35 mil at a drive-in at the time. I really like a fan of like the use of Technicolor in horror films and or thrillers. And that goes for like Mario Barber, Suspiria, Peeping Tom, Michael Powell's film, Black Narcissus, also Powell and Pressburger. 
And then also, you know, there's other like films that are like not specifically horrors, but like thriller adjacent, like Basil did and Sapphire, which has got incredible use of Technicolor. So I really like the idea of doing a film that was partly set in the 60s, not just the plot, but just like aesthetically, it was an excuse to make something like a 1965 Technicolor film. Like if you watch William Wyler's The Collector, which is like in blazing sort of Technicolor and it looks amazing. And there's something just otherworldly about that look. I basically sort of, you know, had had this idea in my head for a long time that I wanted to find a way of doing a London set Jalo film. And so that was kind of the part of the inspiration. The story was almost like a, a separate thing born out of spending a lot of time in Soho itself in London. It's funny when people will like sometimes on Twitter, they watch the trailer and they try to sort of do like a gotcha. They go, huh, somebody's been watching Suspiria. And I go, yeah, but all the other ones as well. <laughs> like there's no one film. Yeah, I could I could pin it down to about 30 of them. And at a certain point, I think it's probably not dissimilar to like the way that Quentin or Eli work. There's a sort of point when you're trying to think of your inspirations for a film that when you've watched so many films and even read books, at a certain point, things come in by osmosis. So somebody will say, oh, is this kind of like a riff on this? And I say, yeah, no, that was. And then other times you think, mm, maybe, but not consciously. I mean, I haven't seen that movie in 25 years. But if, if I was influenced, it obviously made like an impact in a subconscious way. The great thing about doing this movie last night in Soho, which takes place in the modern day and the 60s, is that I've spent my entire life watching films set in the 60s. I can't go back in time, not yet, but this is as close as I'll get to going back to the 60s as recreate it. In the Soho itself, that's one of the wild things doing the movie. There are some scenes in the movie where we made modern Soho look like 60s Soho. And that was pretty wild. And yet, actually, around the time that we were filming, like hundreds of people Instagrammed it without even realizing what was happening. Like they walked around the corner one day and like, whoa, the street is all 60s. What's going on? You know, not realizing that we were making a film or, or what the film was. So it was really um, incredible fun doing that. I had a little of that experience when Quentin Tarantino was making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I'd be driving around in Hollywood, turn a corner, and an entire city block would be thrown back to the 1960s. I had exactly that experience. My office in L.A. is around the corner from Musso and Frank, so I saw all of that happening. But there was one day prior to that, and I knew Quentin was filming, and obviously he's filming, I didn't want to bother him. But uh, I was driving down to the Arclight, and outside the Cinerama Dome, it said Krakatoa east of Java on the marquee. And I texted my friend. I was li- literally going to see Oceans 8. And there's like a marquee saying Krakatoa east of Java. And I texted my friend. I said, I'm sure this must be Quentin. I looked across the street and there's Quentin and Robert Richardson and the crew on a dolly. And in fact, my grip on Baby Driver, Danny Pershing, was with them. So and it's that funny thing like with those guys, it's like, it's not like they, they had security, but that didn't stop me from just walking across the street and walking straight over to them and saying, hey, guys. I was born in 1974, so I wasn't even born in the 60s like Quentin was. But like you sort of keep like making these things as a, as a way of a link to the past. You know, it's like it's amazing to, to be able to recreate. I mean, with period films, like sometimes, you know, you frequently have to go outside. Say you're trying to do period London in like the kind of the turn of the century. 
like the film From Hell, the Jack the Ripper film, shot, I think, in Prague, because they're just the East End of London, where Jack the Ripper was on the loose. All of those streets exist, but like the Germans bombed it, and like most of that architecture is long, long gone. So if you want to do like Jack the Ripper era London, you've got to go to Eastern Europe. For years, I was under the impression Woody Allen's film Shadows and Fog was filmed in Prague. Then I heard it was actually shot in New York on a soundstage. Yeah, it was at the Astoria soundstage in Brooklyn, right? Right. I just watched Black Narcissus again on the big screen. And the astonishing thing with that film is it's like entirely shot at Pinewood. It's set in India, in the Himalayas, no less. And it's shot at Pinewood and they shot some, uh, an estate in Sussex. It's just such an incredible like piece of work the matte paintings and that and the use of the set and backdrops and miniatures and every sort of trick in the book, mostly in camera. I introduced the film on Saturday to an audience and I said, oh, I don't want to, you know, it's a difficult film to talk about without breaking the spell of it, but it's worth noting that it was shot in Pinewood entirely. And like I said, if I don't want to ruin the magic, but if you're interested in that, look up Black Narcissus matte paintings and Google that and uh, knock yourself out. Those Pal Pressburger films have that dreamlike quality where it's movie world, not the real world. Even Peeping Tom. I get the impression Last Night in Soho is very dreamlike. The plot of my film doesn't have much to do with Peeping Tom, but there are two locations are in Peeping Tom that are in Last Night in Soho as well. And they're, in fact, only five minutes' walk from my flat. <laughs> so and that wasn't because I was being lazy and thinking, oh, we'll just shoot here. But it's like, hey, that pub is in Peeping Tom and, and that news agent is in Peeping Tom. So why don't we use those two as a little nod to Michael Powell? What's interesting is funny you say that about with, with Peeping Tom, it's interesting the, the difference between the movie world and the real world. If you look at the opening of Peeping Tom... It opens with like a point of view shot of our killer, as we come to discover, likes to kind of capture women at the point of death with his camera and gets his kind of like sexual kicks from that. So it's about kind of capturing on film their like sheer terror of of them about to be killed. At the start of Peeping Tom, the first shot is of a prostitute standing outside, standing in an alley next door to a pub. And... That is actually a real location, but in the movie, the nighttime scene is a set. And when you look at it, it's like, oh, it's a set, and that's a matte painting. Then, when it cuts to the morning and the police find the body and the police are on the scene, now you're in the real location. So there's something really interesting about that, just kind of psychologically. It's like, at night, it's a movie, but in the day, it's real. And it took me a while to figure out that's how it was done because then we shot in Last Night in Soho, there's a a very short scene that's in that same, outside that pub and in that alley, but we shot it at night for real. Black Narcissus is another one where, out of necessity, they're shooting at Pinewood because they can't afford to go to the Himalayas or like maybe a film in 1947 is not going to go to the Himalayas full stop. And on top of that, just the sort of like the dreamlike quality you get from shooting it on a set and the sense of artifice to create something like painterly, just the use of matte paintings. I mean, it's interesting, like Black Narcissus is not necessarily a horror film, but it's certainly like horror adjacent. And there are lots of moments in it that I feel like people have like, used in real horror films so it's kind of like a sort of point of reference whether it be 
in Brian De Palma's work or, you know, in Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island, in Persona, like, which is another kind of horror adjacent movie psychological thrillers that like may be too kind of lofty to be in the horror section of blockbuster if that was a thing that still existed (laughs) but they are you can see how like sort of they're massively influential So when we're talking about great British horror films, I think we have to talk about the Quatermass series, Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2, and Quatermass in the Pit, which aren't known in America under those titles anyway, but are very influential. What's interesting about the Quatermass films is I think they they sort of have to be seen sort of in context of the time, which was uh, an interesting thing, because I think Quatermass is another one of those series, which is maybe more influential on later shows and films than maybe it it deserves to be wider known. I think at the time it was very well known and a big influence on people, but then some of the things that it influenced have become better known than Quatermass itself. For example, I don't think the X-Files would exist without Quatermass. And also there's a large portion of Doctor Who in the 1970s that comes straight from Quatermass. In the sort of 70s version of Doctor Who with John Pertwee and Tom Baker, where BBC, to cut budgets, decided to make all of the John Pertwee episodes earthbound, the Doctor was stuck on Earth, and still fantastical things would happen. There's a lot of things that are very close to Quatermass, and Nigel Neal, the creator of Quatermass, apparently was like livid. Doctor Who kept ripping him off. So what's interesting about Quatermass is that like it's there's two sort of phases of it. It was a sensation in the late 50s because the first Quatermass, the Quatermass experiment, was a live BBC drama shot live and transmitted to the nation. I'm not old enough to remember that. My, my parents like vividly remember that all of the pubs were empty when Quatermass was on. This was back in a day when like there were two channels. I think it was even before BBC Two. So probably just like BBC and ITV. If something like the Quatermass Experiment was such a water cooler, probably before the water cooler existed, <laughs> but like such a kind of a show that like uh, an, a, like a, a must-see TV, my mum and dad vividly remember that people would come home from the pubs to watch Quatermass. So that was the TV version, which you can get on like Blu-ray and all of the Quatermass films existed as a sort of BBC TV show. And then later, they were re-shot as Hammer features. I think all three of the Quatermass Hammer films are really strong. Will you remind me, who, who directed the first one? Is it Val Guest? Val Guest directed the first two. Roy Ward Baker directed Quatermass in the Pit. And Nigel Neal adapted his TV series for the second and third films, but somebody else wrote the screenplay for the first film. And that's one of the reasons he was unhappy with it, that and his hatred of the lead actor in the film, Brian Donlevy. Right. I didn't know about that. I think it's always an interesting thing, like, that you've seen the things that it influenced and then you go back and see the kind of the source. You know, obviously within the sci-fi horror world, Quatermass is a sort of a known quantity for people of a certain age. I'm not sure, like, a younger generation really knows what they are, but I think they're really... All three of the Hammer movies are really good. 
Quatermass in the Pit is the most famous one, maybe just because of the title and also it's kind of quite an extraordinary film and it's in colour. But the first two are good. Like Quatermass Experiment is good and I really like Quatermass too. And again, it's like it maybe like has a lot more influence than it might first appear. Like I'd say that the, the X-Files would not exist without Quatermass. Professor Quatermass, you know, becomes Mulder and Scully like a duo in, in the X-Files. The X-Files is sort of an amalgam of the Quatermass films and the Night Stalker. Kolchak in The Night Stalker is the sort of skeptic or is the person who's kind of like cynical and world weary and then finds his way into sort of fantastical stuff. And then Professor Quatermass is a man of science coming in to kind of deal with fantastical events. It's interesting when you get inspired for things, but then you sort of don't quite know where they come from. And it's interesting as a sort of, this is a sort of tangential, but The World's End, we came up with that idea and it's sort of a riff on... Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yes. But then, like, later, when I was doing research for The World's End, I started watching a lot of British sci-fi films of that period. Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2, Quatermass in the Pit, and some other ones like The Earth Dies Screaming, which is an amazing title. Maybe the title is better than the movie, but it sort of shows an alien invasion, but really just through, like, this tiny hamlet. You know, it's one of those, like very narrow focus alien invasions where it's essentially about aliens taking over the entire earth, but we're just in this one village with like four actors <laughs> and a tiny village green. And what's funny about that is I was watching the earth die screaming. I was like, this seems really familiar and I can't remember why. And then later, maybe after the world's end had come out, Somebody on Twitter or a journalist said, hey, were you inspired by the Doctor Who story, The Android Invasion? And I'm like, you know what? I read the Doctor Who novelization when I was like six or seven. I never saw the actual show. But obviously, as soon as they'd said it, I was like, The Android Invasion. And then I watched The Android Invasion and I was like, huh, this is a ripoff of The Earth Dies Screaming. It's exactly the same as The Earth Dies Screaming. And Nigel Neal, the creator of Quatermass, by all accounts, is sort of pissed off that he didn't really get the credit for, like, what Quatermass spawned. I always feel like it's something that, like, there's always been talk of a remake of Quatermass. There was one in the late 70s with John Mills. It was like a miniseries. There was also in the, like, maybe about 10 years ago, they, Mark Gattis, who the co-creator of Sherlock, did a live version of Quatermass, like, on BBC4, as they used to do the old BBC shows. What I really like about the Quatermass films is that it's something that I feel like in Hollywood, one of the reasons that they probably wouldn't remake it is because he's like a professor in a tweed jacket. It would be like doing a film with just the boffin, Usually, like, the Quatermass character in a Hollywood film would be, like, the first to die. Like, sort of, like, you know, the egghead. But that's what's great about those films is he's very British, he's a professor, and he's approaching everything in a very pragmatic way. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it's, like, never been properly remade is that they'd be trying to find a way to make him kind of, like, sexy. Like, when they did the Kolchak remake on TV... They had, like, you know, Darren McGavin as Kolchak in The Night Stalker is, like, a character actor. And then the Kolchak remake had Stuart Townsend, the most handsome actor you could possibly find to play, you know, like a sort of cynical journalist. 
So, and it's funny, occasionally, like, the Quatermass thing has come around to me, like, the people who own the rights to Hammer are saying, hey, any interest in doing something with Quatermass? And I've never quite got my head around it, but it's it's an intriguing idea. But I feel like the Quatermass films deserve more attention now. Obviously, the films have a lot of famous fans, like Martin Scorsese is a big fan of Quatermass from the pit, which I think the US title, correct me if I'm wrong, is Five Million Miles to Earth? Close. Five million years to Earth. Damn it! You can keep that in. I was so close. Uh, <laughs> as I recall, <laughs> the American title of Quite Massive Pit is Five Million Years to Earth. I'm not quite sure what that means. But I wish the films were better known to a younger audience. And maybe through the history of horror, we can make that happen. So I want to ask you about mad scientists. What is it about the mad scientist as an archetype that we keep returning to in horror films? I guess really it's like an inbuilt fear of the future. I mean, I'm not personally like scared of science, but I'm sure there are a lot of people that are. The anti-vax movement, that is a thing where people are scared of like sort of medical science. The mad scientist genre, I think it's something that never goes away because like for somebody to develop something in science or in medicine requires them to be responsible. And then there are people who are in charge who seem really irresponsible. Like, uh, this might not be controversial to say this, but I do not trust Elon Musk as far as I can fucking throw him. <laughs> like, but that guy, to me, seems like a supervillain in waiting. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy saying that on camera. Mark my words. But so that's the thing is that you sort of like, Anything where people are breaking ground requires some kind of responsibility. And of course, then that conjures up in literature and in film and in TV, like so many characters of the people who are sort of like in pushing boundaries are willing to take risks that are fatal or willing to go where others will not. That's where the character of Dr. Frankenstein is so compelling whether it's in the Universal films or whether it's in the sort of classic Hammer strand. Because in his head, Dr. Frankenstein is a hero. He is trying to push forward into something new. He has got the sort of genius to like sort of reanimate life, bring people back from the dead. But the brilliance of Frankenstein is that he doesn't know that he's the baddie. (laughs) And... I love, like, um, the Universal Frankenstein movies, but I actually recently rewatched all of the Peter Cushing Hammer Frankenstein movies. And I think Peter Cushing as Frankenstein is such a great character because it's an unusual, like, lead to have in a film because it's like your hero is the villain. There's always, like, a sort of... It's usually the secondary character in the Frankenstein movies is the one who's there to kind of like stop Dr. Frankenstein. In the movies, in the Hammer series of films, which is there's seven movies, six of which Peter Cushing plays Frankenstein. What's interesting is they start to feel like urban myths in a way because they they don't always completely follow on from each other. 
sometimes Peter Cushing's Dr. Frankenstein is clearly dead at the end of the movie. And then he's like back in the next one. And it feels a little bit like in the real world, like bad doctors who kind of, you know, nearly go to prison and change their identity and turn up in South America and then get found out again and turn up somewhere else. It's not dissimilar. You know, when you hear kind of stories about kind of criminal plastic surgeons who are like sort of, you know, wanted for manslaughter, but then find like a way to kind of like turn up in another country under a different guise and keep working. That's exactly what Baron Frankenstein does. I mean, I find like his character really fascinating. And and sometimes you're on his side in terms of you understand that what he's striving for is, is something revolutionary. But his methods to get there are wrong, <laughs> like on so many levels. And there are some films where he's like out, he's much more of a monster. It's a testament to Peter Cushing for him to make that character so compelling. Okay, here's my pitch is that Boris Karloff is the quintessential Frankenstein's monster. No question. If you had to kind of imagine Frankenstein's monster in your head, Boris Karloff is who you think of. Who do I think of when I think of Dr. Frankenstein or Baron Frankenstein? I think of Peter Cushing. That's what's interesting. In the Universal movies, Boris Karloff is the star. In the Hammer movies, Peter Cushing is the star. I find that fascinating. And I, I think that, that both like, franchises equally like, have their own like, merits. I find the Hammer films like, endlessly fascinating. And even the ones that are like third tier ones, they're still really entertaining. I mean, I watched them all recently. And it's that thing when you then look online and you look at fan rankings and stuff and the ones that are near the bottom, like a lot of people don't like Evil of Frankenstein for some reason because of the continuity. And I'm like, I don't know, Evil of Frankenstein's pretty good. I take Evil of Frankenstein or even the horror of Frankenstein, which is clearly the, the least of the seven which stars Ralph Bates as, as uh, Dr. Frankenstein and not Peter Cushing. All of those films, even like a fifth-rate Hammer movie is better than like sort of a so-so contemporary horror movie. <laughs> Since we've been talking about Hammer, I read that you recently watched Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I've been trying to watch every Jekyll and Hyde movie ever made for the series, so I picked that up, and it's quite something. I watched that because um, during lockdown... Quite amazingly, I got into correspondence with Martin Scorsese. I had written him an email to thank him for this list that he'd done of international films. And that quickly turned into a conversation. I just asked him in this email, out of interest, what are some of your favourite formative British films, like British films that you loved when you were growing up? And he sent me like a list of like, I think it's like 50 films, half of which I'd seen and the other half I hadn't. And in that list was a lot of Hammer Horror. And one of the Hammer Horror films, there were, there were some Hammer Horror films that I'd seen, but not since I was 15 years old, like The Devil Rides Out. But one that I realized, oh, I've never seen that one, was Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. And it was curious that I hadn't, because in the UK, sadly, like kind of kids growing up these days are not spoiled like we were. But back when I was growing up, in a pre- internet age and for me a pre-VHS age we never had a VHS player in our house until I was 15 when I actually not bought it but I rented a VHS player myself with my like Saturday job money my mum and dad just didn't have a VHS player so I would rely on watching late night horror films on the BBC and BBC One on a weekend close to midnight pretty 
regularly, it would be a Hammer horror film or an Amicus film. So I saw like nearly all of those movies like that, staying up and watching them late at night and on the other channels as well. Like a lot of like 50s, 60s, 70s British horror. But for some reason, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which certainly played a lot, is one that I missed. The real takeaways for me from that movie is that the Hammer movies of that period, you had these directors that were like brilliant craftsmen making kind of like films in the twilight of their career. So Terence Fisher and Roy Ward Baker, two of like the great Hammer directors, had been working, you know, since the sort of 30s and 40s. The Hammer movies are like their last movies, essentially. And probably at the time, I'm sure some people in the British film industry thought that they were slumming it by doing Hammer movies. However, when you watch the movies, there's such a level of craft in them. This is why Martin Scorsese loves Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Is it campy? Is it a bit silly by today's standards? Are there things that are un-PC by today's standard? Absolutely, yes. Is there a level of craft in it that isn't in modern movies? Absolutely. And what's interesting, so for one example in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, I watched the movie and I've just made a movie, which uh, I'm not going to reveal too much about it, but even just by the trailer you can see that there are mirror effects in Last Night in Soho. And a lot of the mirror effects are done practically without the use of CG and without the use of motion control. So we've been watching tons of like scenes in movies where they did in-camera mirror effects, everything from like Terminator 2 to like Watcher in the Woods, which has some amazing mirror shots in that directed by John Huff. But I had missed a great one in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. So now I want to talk about craft in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. I posted on Instagram the other day, like the spines of all the Blu-rays I've been watching. And uh, somebody saw the Hammer movies and said, do you watch any good movies? And I was like, how dare you? How absolutely dare you? And they said, do you watch any good movies like David Lynch or like sort of Kubrick or Scorsese? And the irony there is just like, well, for one, Martin Scorsese and David Lynch are big Hammer horror movie fans. I mean, literally Freddie Francis, a Hammer director, was the DP on a lot of David Lynch films. And Martin Scorsese has several times as referenced Hammer horror films, not least like Shutter Island. So when Martin Scorsese recommends Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde to me, and then I watch it, I know exactly what he's talking about, is that within this film, which to some might seem a bit campy by today's standards, There are like moments of craft which could only come from directors who are like brilliant at what they do and have been doing it for decades. As an example, the first time Dr. Jekyll, Ralph Bates, turns into Sister Hyde, played by Martine Beswick, it's all done in one shot and it suddenly goes into handheld. You know, most of the film otherwise, like Hammer movies of the time, kind of very classily shot and kind of in not a conventional way, but it's shot bit like a costume film. You know, it's very sort of classy and sophisticated. And then it cuts to this handheld shot where it follows Ralph Bates as he kind of is in pain after taking this formula. And it follows him around and then he goes into kind of like a chair and crumples up. And then the camera like pans over to a mirror. And in the mirror is Martine Beswick. It's all in one shot. Now, when you look at that in today's sort of films, unlike my one, 
people might do that as like a motion control shot or do two passes or do a CG, but it's all in shot together. And I sort of found this scene and like, I'd already made my movie, but I kind of found the clip online and I sent it to my production designer and my brother and my VFX supervisor. It's like, hey, check out this shot from Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's all in camera. And it's just very, very simple. It's basically they're shooting like Ralph Bates and Martin Beswick on the same shot. So it's Ralph Bates' shoulder and Martin Beswick in the mirror. But the mirror is angled in such a way that Martin Beswick is just off camera. Like, it's, like, perfectly done. We did a very similar shot in Last Night in Soho. But I can't say I ripped off the scene from Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde because I hadn't seen it. <laughs> but I watched it again and I kept watching you saying... This is amazing. What a, like, a simple, great movie stagecraft. Like, it's just movie magic where it's like, you could show that to anybody, people who are making films at home. It's like people have got so kind of, like, spoiled by CGI in movies, they actually can't imagine that you could do some of these shots in camera. And so the reason to go back and watch those films is if you're a young like filmmaker and you don't have the money to do like a CGI shot or green screen or motion control, it's like you don't have to watch these like films. There's like a ton of like really clever in camera shots. So that was my big takeaway from Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde is that like Roy Ward Baker, who had made like a brilliant film about the Titanic called A Night to Remember, is in his twilight years making Hammer movies and Amicus movies. In fact, he directed Asylum, which is probably my favorite anthology horror movie. These guys are like amazing craftsmen and like there's a lot to learn from them. And I feel like they, um, people sort of get bogged down with Hammer films by some of the kind of the more seemingly sort of lowbrow elements like the bosomy actresses or the kind of like campy acting and stuff. But there's a lot of like, sophistication in those movies it's always something interesting in a hammer movie like i could watch them endlessly and it's funny to me that somebody's saying you know why watch hammer movies when you could watch david lynch and martin scorsese i'm like martin scorsese and david lynch watch hammer movies (laughs) like get with the program In essence, there are no new tricks. Like, and when somebody does come up with a new trick, it's always like, that's really interesting. But it's usually a variation on something that was done. And it's usually a variation of something that was done in the silent era. Like, I always thought it's interesting, like, what's the first time somebody shot the person in the bathroom cabinet shot? Because the first time I saw it was in American Wealth in London. It's like when David Norton pulls the mirror aside and Griffin Dunn's in the reflection. But it's in Repulsion, the Roman Polanski film. But then I'm thinking, it must be in something before. I remember once emailing my go-to Wikipedia people would be Joe Dante and John Landis. <laughs> and if they don't know something, then I can't tell you. There isn't a single trick in the book that wasn't done in a silent film. The universal horror films, like in the early 30s, 
are extraordinary because you're seeing movies that are made by the first sound filmmakers, but this is like the peak of craft of the silent era. And the interesting thing is in the silent era, people are using obviously visual storytelling a lot more and silent films are telling stories in visuals. When you have the universal horror movies of the 30s, that kind of visual storytelling and craft is still there. Later, like maybe things get a little lazy where people have sort of lost the art of telling stories through pictures or through mood. And when I say mood, I mean literally through lighting, you know, in terms of what you can do to sort of conjure up tone in black and white cinematography and what you can do with black and white production design. That's the sort of genius of those kind of universal films of that period. When you look at like the universal horror films, they're all like knocked out in about a five year period. So when you actually look at like, well, James Whale looks like he made three classics in one year. <laughs> looks like all of the universal period is pretty much like less than 10 years of like sort of knocking out classic after classic. But I think what it is, is like that these filmmakers are sort of just come out of like the zenith of silent movies where there's more sophistication and ideas than maybe contemporary filmmakers coming through now. Well, in that context, perhaps you could talk a little about the 1933 Invisible Man directed by James Whale. It's a piece of craft. Just the fact that those are all practical effects done 90 years ago is pretty amazing. I mean, there's things about the universal horror films that just do not date. And it's usually the performances. It's, you, you know, like Boris Karloff as the monster is indelible, unforgettable. Elsa Lancaster as the Bride of Frankenstein is unforgettable. Bella Lugosi as Dracula is unforgettable. Claude Rains as the Invisible Man is unforgettable. Beyond that is like the level of craft that they put into those movies for the time in terms of like practical effects or the first kind of like sense of like what would become kind of like digital effects or at least the idea of color separation or like the idea of doing in-cam optical effects essentially also in invisible man is like and in all of the james whale films incredible miniature effects like there's an incredible train crash sequence in the invisible man which is all done with miniatures i think when i watch them it's always a joy because probably growing up i saw endless riffs on those movies before i saw the black and white films like, I certainly saw The Hammer, Dracula, and Frankenstein before I saw the universe ones. I probably saw David McCallum's Invisible Man TV show before I saw James Whale's The Invisible Man. They're so kind of iconic. You'd have to be really, like, sort of ignorant to not appreciate the level of craft in those movies. In some of those movies that there are, like, shots in them that just feel like I feel like sometimes they're like blessed frames, as in you almost can't believe that something so beautiful was captured on camera or that you can't even imagine like being on set. Like sometimes when you see those behind the scenes photos of Frankenstein and you see Boris Karloff's green makeup, because obviously even though it's shot in black and white, they still had to think about color tone. It's not like the actors are there in black and white makeup. It's in color. But, you know, back then the cinematographer and the production designer and the costume designer and the makeup designer had to think about what colors would look good when they're shot in black and white. 
So it's extraordinary, the craft in those movies. And in a strange way, films of that golden period of Hollywood in the 30s, there's elements of it that just can't be bettered. All that people would just like use visual effects as a crutch these days, where you would actually build those sets or build those miniatures or design those massive props. Now, like people get lazy and they say, no, we don't have to build the whole apparatus. We'll just build a small part of it and then CG will do the rest. Oh, CG can do a set extension. We don't have to build the whole thing. So there's an element of it where what they did in the 30s is like as good as what they could do now. And so that's what I take away from it is that obviously like on a performance level, it's just extraordinary stuff. But the invention at the sort of the cusp of like creating these special effects for the screen that they like, how do we do the invisible man? Like, well, we have to kind of invent these techniques for the camera. And like, then every Invisible Man film after that is essentially doing riffs on the same thing. Like Claude Rains unwrapping the bandage to reveal nothing. It's the same effect in like the 2020 version of The Invisible Man. It's the same effect in like John Carpenter's Memoirs of the Invisible Man. It's the same effect in like Paul Verhoeven's Hollow Man. But they were doing it in the 30s when computers literally didn't exist. <laughs> Jumping to the modern world, what did you make of Ex Machina as a mad scientist film? I really like Alex Garland's take on genres because what he's done sort of over and over with the films that he's either written or written and directed approached the sci-fi and horror genre from a very clinical, modern perspective. And I find it really interesting. So to me, like, Ex Machina is Frankenstein in the age of Mark Zuckerberg. So I, I really like think that what Alex does is, is incredibly smart because my favorite horror remakes of the 70s and 80s are ones where they take the premise and update it in a very interesting way. Great examples being David Cronenberg's The Fly or Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers or John Carpenter's The Thing. They find some kind of like modern metaphor to, to hang the premise on. Then I feel like in the sort of like the 90s and early like 21st century, horror remakes got kind of lazy where they're just like repeating the beats of the previous film. They're not really doing anything interesting in it. They're just doing like a new version of, but with no real new metaphor or nothing really to say beyond what the original film said. Alex Garland doesn't do remakes. He's sort of smarter than that in a way, is that he sort of finds a way to do an original version of something. So obviously Ex Machina trades on a lot of the ideas that are in Frankenstein, but he's doing it through a contemporary lens. And that's great. Like sort of like Ex Machina fits into the same world as The Social Network or Steve Jobs. And he's incredibly canny, Alex, at doing that, of making you feel like you're seeing something 
completely fresh whilst paying homage to all of the kind of like the genre tropes that he loves. I, I feel like it, we're similar in a way, even though me and Alex will probably make very different films. When we tackle a genre, it's with like deep, deep affection. I'm always interested to see how he does it. And I think Ex Machina is like his best film so far because he manages to do something very simple and very complicated. Like it's a chamber piece. There's only really like four people in the movie. That said, the special effects are like out of this world and won an Oscar. Andrew Whitehurst, who was the sort of visual effects supervisor on Ex Machina, rightly like beats all the other contenders in the visual effects category at the Oscars that year with a movie that cost the 10th of the other movies. And that's because there's just a level of invention and ingenuity that it, you know, it goes right back to like the sort of the effects in like James Wales, the invisible man is like, how can we make somebody be there? But like parts of them are translucent. You're creating a CG character in inverted commas, but it's absolutely Alicia Vikander's performance. It's like somewhere between the two. Like it's a sort of fascinating thing to do it's interesting to me stanley kubrick's version of ai artificial intelligence his original idea for ai was that he was going to shoot the android boy as an animatronic puppet and he employed the director chris cunningham to come up with the animatronic puppet because he had seen some of chris cunningham's work and thought that he could create this character that they could hang an entire film on so in secret Chris Cunningham was working with Stanley Kubrick in the years before he died. And then Stanley Kubrick passed away. And then his version of AI, like, is not happening for the moment. Steven Spielberg then makes AI years later and decides to go the other way and cast an actor to play the robot boy. But Chris Cunningham takes some of the technology that he'd been developing for AI, for Kubrick's AI, and he puts it into the music video for Bjork's All Is Full of Love. Now, if you look at that video, then that video in itself is like highly influential. If you look at the Bjork's All Is Full of Love video and then later look at um, the Will Smith version of iRobot, you're like, huh, <laughs> someone's been watching the Bjork video. And then I think, and no disrespect to the people who made Ex Machina because I think their creation is brilliant. But it's almost like Alex is sort of taking elements of what Kubrick wanted to do with AI and bringing it into that film. But he manages to do it with Alicia Vikander doing a performance on set. It seems wrong in a way to say it's a low-budget movie, but it is because it's so beautifully made and so state-of-the-art, cutting-edge enough to win the Oscar for visual effects. And yet it is kind of like harking back to the idea of like, it's a film with big ideas it's a film with a special effect that if it doesn't work, the entire film fails, no matter how good her performance is. But it seems somehow kind of like reductive to call it a B-movie. But it is like a sort of a low-budget sci-fi film that has bigger ambitions and bigger ideas than a lot of films that cost 10 times as much. That's the genius of Ex Machina.
You are, of course, a big fan of horror films and music. So what are your thoughts on the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Perhaps controversially, and I don't want to kind of like have some fans throwing things at the screen. I'm not the biggest Rocky Horror Picture Show fan. I like it. I appreciate it. But, and I don't mean to sound like a kind of hipster contrarian saying like, oh, I like the Rolling Stones better than the Beatles. (laughs) But I do prefer Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise to Rocky Horror Picture Show. They were released like in consecutive years. They were both like released by Fox. Phantom of the Paradise is a 1974 rock horror musical and Rocky Horror Picture Show is a 1975 rock horror musical. But one is massively more famous than the other. They both have a a very passionate cult following. But I am like died in the wall, a Phantom of the Paradise fan. And for that reason alone, I, I can never, even though I enjoy Rocky Horror Show and there are like songs in it that I really love and set pieces that I really love, I do, if I'm completely honest, I feel like Rocky Horror Picture Show slightly loses steam in the second act. It hits the ground running so hard with like, and all of the best songs are in the first half. I know that might be controversial to say so, but damn it, Janet, and There's a Light, and The Time Warp, and Sweet Transsexual are all in the first half, and, and, and it starts to kind of like peter out a little bit for me. Whereas Phantom of the Paradise, which I think is only like 92 minutes long, is like fiendishly paced, like has an amazing climax. Like I love all the songs. I really love it's the way it's directed. I mean, it, you're only comparing the two because they came out so close to each other. And if you had to say like uh, name a rock horror musical, Phantom of the Paradise and Rocky Horror Picture Show would be the first two that you mention. That said, I'm always willing to have my mind changed. It's been a long time since I've seen Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'd like to give Rocky Horror Picture Show another shot, but I I don't want to watch it at home. I need to see it with the full-on audience participation. So I'm looking forward post-pandemic. Next time I'm in LA and Rocky Horror Picture Show is playing at the New Art, that's the next time I'm going to watch it. I did hear this very sweet story because obviously Rocky Horror Picture Show has been playing Midnight somewhere in the world ever since 1975. It was one of the original Midnight movies. When people talk about the idea of Midnight movies, they're usually referring to Rocky Horror Picture Show. And there are cinemas that have played it every week since the 70s. Now, cinemas have been closed in the pandemic, but I did hear (laughs) that there's a cinema in Oregon where they always used to show Rocky Horror Picture Show and the projectionist to keep the record of Rocky Horror Picture Show showing every weekend alive kept showing the movie on a Saturday to an empty cinema. So he would go in every Saturday during lockdown and play the movie and watch it, even if it was just him or a couple of friends. So they could say, we kept, it's played every Saturday since like the 70s. It's a bit like in London in the, in the, during the Blitz, there was this thing called the windmill. It's like, we never closed. Ironically, the windmill did close during the pandemic. But this one cinema in Oregon has been playing Rocky Horror Show the entire time. Similarly, with Phantom of the Paradise, it was like not a hit in the US, but it was a hit in two places. In Winnipeg, in Canada, (laughs) Phantom of the Paradise played like for years on end. The other place where Phantom of the Paradise was a massive hit was Paris, where 
it basically started playing the rep cinemas and never left. And two people in the audience as teenagers watching it week in, week out were Thomas and Gimon from Daft Punk, uh, who are big Phantom of the Paradise fans. I moderated a Q&A for Phantom of the Paradise for the 40th anniversary at the Cinerama Dome. And Thomas and Gimon were in the house because it's their favorite film. It stars Paul Williams, uh, not as the Phantom, but as the sort of uh, very Phil spector baddie, <laughs> the super producer Swan, uh, like a rock producer. Daft Punk's Random Access Memories album, their final album to this day, is a song called Touch, sung and the lyrics written by Paul Williams. And the song Touch on the Daft Punk album is basically a new Phantom of the Paradise song. It's like the song is sung by Paul Williams' character from Phantom of the Paradise. So for me, like listening to that album, being a Phantom of the Paradise fan, getting to the song Touch, I was like, oh my God, it's like a new Phantom of the Paradise song. And lo and behold, like when Daft Punk won the Grammy for Random Access Memories, the two people they got to speak for them because they were dressed up as the robots were like Pharrell Williams and Paul Williams, who like accepted the award on their behalf. So I, I always gravitate towards Phantom of the Paradise. And if, if you want to call me a contrarian hipster for saying that, like it's a bit like a, mm, their first album is so much better, but I do prefer Phantom of the Paradise as a movie. And I, I, I like that Phantom of the Paradise has a growing cult. It Maybe it will never become as big as Rocky Horror Picture Show, but mark my words, it's the better movie. Well, I guess I'm also a contrarian hipster because I absolutely agree with you on that. Uh, for a while there, that was the least well-known movie Brian De Palma made in the 70s. I mean, it's written and directed by Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma doesn't write all of his movies, but he has sole screenwriting credit on Fans of the Paradise. And unusually, maybe for a Brian De Palma film, it's very funny and incredibly sharp about the music business. It is an extraordinary movie. Brian De Palma is only two films away from making Carrie... And I think that movie is like, it's on a low budget, but is absolutely jam-packed with ideas. Brian De Palma is somebody who like is always kind of striving for something incredibly ambitious in his early films, like Beyond His Means. Like Phantom of the Paradise, it's like what he wants to do is just beyond his means, but it looks like epic. And it's a real inspiration to me because it's like he attacks Phantom of the Paradise like he's making Citizen Kane. It's one of my favorite department movies to this day. So when people say, what is the greatest horror rock musical? It's Phantom of the Paradise. Number one. Always be number one. Now, speaking of De Palma, one of the films we're going to cover in our Psychics episode is The Fury. You mentioned how his grasp exceeded his means, but in the case of The Fury, De Palma's just on Carrie, and the studio says, here's a bunch of money. So what does he do with that? Brian De Palma's The Fury is an interesting one because it's his film that he made after Carrie, like his biggest hit to that day, and, you know, a massive, like, 70s horror hit, so Brian De Palma can, I'm sure, can like write his own check and do whatever he wants. And uh, rather kind of um, obtusely, maybe, he decides to make another film about girls with telekinetic powers. It's quite odd that like 
you know, whenever I've had the opportunity to make whatever I want to make, I, I tend to do something completely different. So it's it's curious to me that Brian De Palma thought after Carrie that he would dive straight into the Fury. And the Fury I, is is not as good as Carrie in my estimation and um, not one of my favorite De Palmas. Yet it is like an astonishing watch. And you're watching somebody who's at the peak of their powers in terms of like, the budget they've been given by the studio, the actors that he's working of, like the Fury features Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes. And there are set pieces in that movie that are absolutely stunning. You know, the attack on the beachside town by terrorists, the set piece where like um, Andrew Stevens, like sort of takes apart the funfair ride is really like sort of explosive and shocking. Yeah, there's another, like, really, like, gnarly death scene where Andrew Stevens spins Fiona Lewis, like, around and around and around until kind of, like, sort of blood is shooting out of every orifice is a really, like, sort of, like, nasty death scene. I think that The Fury would probably be about 20 minutes shorter if it was all shot in 24 frames a second, but there's so much slow-mo in The Fury. And maybe he's spinning his wheels a little bit doing another telekinetic horror thriller. It's more of a thriller, this one. It goes more into kind of like, almost like a John Wyndham type movie in a sense about kind of people with superpowers. I guess in a weird way, The Fury is sort of a bit more like an X-Men movie than it is a horror film. And I really like that aspect about it. And I love the way it's shot and it has an incredible cast. Amy Irving is brilliant. You know, have a young Daryl Hannah is at the start of the movie as well. So it's, it's never less than incredibly watchable and with some incredibly memorable images not least when people talk about exploding heads in cinema they usually go straight to david cronenberg's scanners which does have an incredible exploding head interestingly david cronenberg's scanners which again is a horror thriller and plays a bit more like an x-men movie than maybe like a straight horror movie It's essentially about people with superpowers who are kind of um, a minority with superpowers who have to go into hiding because they can't control how powerful they are and they're dangerous to the government and because they can be used as a weapon. There's a lot of crossover between the Fury and Scanners. Now, interestingly enough, Scanners opens with the exploding headset piece. And as good as Scanners is, it can't quite top that opening scene where Michael Ironside who has incredible telekinetic powers, makes the man sitting next to him, it makes his head explode on live TV. That's right, isn't it? What are they doing at that moment? It's a conference, isn't it? Yes, it's a conference. One scanner is demonstrating his psychic abilities and Michael Ironside blows up the guy's head to announce the arrival of renegade telepaths. That set piece at the start of the movie where um, Michael Ironside blows up another psychic's head is quite rightly you know, one of the most memorable and graphic images in horror. And I think the film scanners like can't quite kind of top it. The rest of the film is interesting and there's some great effects later on, but it's never better than that sequence. Towards the end of the movie, you have some amazing makeup effects where Michael Ironside is like sort of pulsating and the veins in his arms and his head. As a kid, I didn't see the movie because I was too young, but I was really taken with the the quad poster and the tagline. Let me just read the tagline because for a long time, it's probably a good 15 years before I saw the movie, but what's stuck in my head. And if you'll allow me, I'll read it out. This is the tagline from scanners. 10 seconds. The pain begins. 
15 seconds, you can't breathe. 20 seconds, you explode. David Cronenberg scanners, their thoughts can kill Certificate X. Now, okay, I see that poster when I'm like seven when Scanners comes out and it's like, oh my God, what is in that movie? 20 seconds, you explode. And the truth of it is the film does not disappoint, but it's a bit unbalanced because the best effect in the movie is in the first 15 minutes of the movie. And great as the rest of the film is, it can't quite live up to that. Cut to... Brian De Palma's The Fury, which actually came out three years earlier than Scanners. So actually is the first one. Brian De Palma's The Fury ends on an exploding head. Amy Irving makes John Cassavetti's head explode. Now, John Cassavetti's, at that point in his career, is, is like one of the foremost independent filmmakers in the US. Has a completely separate career from his acting for making independent films that are, like, groundbreaking. A Woman Under the Influence, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. You know, I think him appearing in Hollywood movies, he's only really doing it so he can fund the independent movies. So I'm sure there's an element of, like, film critics who kind of maybe think that John Cassavetes in his later career is kind of sometimes slumming it in movies, especially, like, a movie like Incubus or something like that, where it feels like he's in there for the paycheck so he can go off and make another film with his wife, the amazing Gina Rowlands. So what's amazing about the end of The Fury is Brian De Palma, young hotshot kind of like um, brat pack film brat director, is blows up John Cassavetes. <laughs> Essentially blows up one of the most famous directors of the previous generation. I'm not sure if that was deliberate or not. It would be like if Brian De Palma was blowing up Orson Welles on camera. It's kind of quite pointed. Brian De Palma and John Cassavetes are not the same kind of filmmaker, so I don't know if that was any intention for it to be symbolic. The film scholar Howard S. Berger contends that every Brian De Palma film is actually autobiographical. So in a sense, by blowing up Cassavetes, he's blowing up his independent film career. So underground filmmaker De Palma becomes indie director De Palma, and now he's moving on to become Hollywood De Palma. I think that's very fair. I think, I think you could definitely kind of draw a line to say that like, when Brian De Palma blows up John Cassavetes, He's like making a comment about his early independent films because before Brian De Palma went into kind of like his thriller horror territory with Sisters, like his early films like Greetings or Hi Mom, they're more in that kind of French New Wave cinema kind of phase. And they are independent movies. And John Cassavetes at that point in time in 1978 was the most famous independent film director. So there's obviously something in it. The other thing that I really think about that ending is that the effect is like extraordinary. And uh, unlike Scanners, which is shot with like one camera, Brian De Palma seems to have seven cameras on John Cassavetti's head exploding and all in glorious slow motion. And the other thing I want to say about that scene is not only is it a hell of a way to end a movie, John Williams does the score for The Fury. I think it's the only Brian De Palma film which John Williams does the score for. But there's a point when The Fury is ending is John Williams' score almost goes into sort of like, it almost feels like a fanfare. It almost feels like you could have the 20th Century Fox fanfare music playing over that explosion. 
And I really love that kind of cue because it kind of like the theremin comes in when Amy Irving's going to blow John Cassavetti's head up. The theremin on the score is going crazy. And then as it explodes, it's less of like a horror moment, like the score at the end of Carrie. It's more a, a joyous moment. So that's what I love about that. If you listen to that cue, it may as well that they put at the end of it whilst the head's exploding. Twentieth Century Fox. I'd love that. I think it's just like an extraordinary way to end a movie. John Williams composing that piece of music is like, fuck it, go all out. Let's just make it a celebration. Let's celebrate this head blowing up. So it's a sort of strangely like joyous ending to that movie. It doesn't quite uh, get enough credit for being like the other most famous exploding head in film. So many of the tropes of depicting psychic phenomena on screen come from that movie, I think. The body going stiff and the veins in the forehead bulging because your brain is working so hard. Like Rick Baker did that first in The Fury and everybody's copied it since then. But I'll say what you said about the veins because you're dead on and like, you know, The Fury is not the most famous like film about people with telekinetic powers. It's not as famous as Brian De Palma's Carrie, and it's not as famous as David Cronenberg's Scanners. However, there are things that are in The Fury that have been ripped off in every film about psychic powers, including superhero movies ever since. It's like the Rick Baker effect of the throbbing veins in the head of like the psychic sort of concentrating so hard to make something move or something explode is that they're stock still, they're staring and the veins, like the prosthetic veins are pulsing in their head. That's first seen in the fury and like ripped off in like films to this day. So it's an interesting thing. Whereas if the fury maybe is lesser known in De Palma's canon and sort of lesser known as a horror film, because it plays a bit more like a thriller, it has elements in it that like are hugely influential. Let's talk about Cronenberg's next psychic movie, After Scanners. A very different take on the subject, The Dead Zone. I'm very fond of David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. David Cronenberg is like an author who has a very kind of idiosyncratic style to his movies. And The Dead Zone is his first Hollywood movie. I mean, it's his first kind of like studio movie. And, you know, a lot of times when kind of like directors make independent genre movies or horror movies and then make a studio movie, Cronenberg like never has that problem. Cronenberg seems to find a way to sort of make any material his. It's like it's an adaptation of a Stephen King film and it's a Dino De Laurentiis production and it's released, I think, by Universal. But it's still a David Cronenberg movie. And I think Cronenberg sort of seems to gravitate towards protagonists who are like, at the cutting edge of something, whether they like it or not. And usually picks actors that I think are an extension of himself. It's like if David Cronenberg could play the part himself, he would. And he'd probably be pretty good at it because he's a good actor. But you could imagine David Cronenberg playing 
Christopher Walken's part in the dead zone. And you can imagine David Cronenberg playing Jeff Goldblum's part in The Fly. Like he sort of is an interesting character because I think he sort of like gravitates towards leads that are similar to him. You could imagine David Cronenberg playing both the Jeremy Irons parts in Dead Ringers. It's a sort of very particular kind of male lead in a Cronenberg film. And in a way, like Christopher Walken is like a gift for David Cronenberg. It's the perfect part for him because like, you really buy like, Christopher Walken as like a school teacher who through kind of like sort of, um, you know, a terrible tragedy gains these powers and then is like cursed with a gift. That's what's great about the dead zone is like you're given this kind of gift of being able to see the future, which should be something that's great. You could be a religious leader with a power like that. And yet it keeps leading him into situations whereby he's shown some incredibly dark things. And sometimes he can save people and sometimes he can't. The scene that really stays with me in the dead zone is when he's in hospital and he touches the hand of the nurse and he knows that the nurse's house is on fire and that her child is in peril. You can see not that far into the future where there's like a house fire and that her child is in mortal peril. Cronenberg shoots it in a really interesting way where Christopher Walken basically transports himself into the house on fire. And the shot that really stays with me in that is Walken in bed in the room that's on fire. Like, that's the sort of an image that's always really stayed with me in that movie. A couple of interesting things with The Dead Zone is that Christopher Walken is in a stage in his career where he hasn't become Christopher Walken in inverted commas. I think in the 90s, when, like, Christopher Walken has become, like, a, a beloved icon, people are doing impersonations of him on Saturday Night Live. He starts to lean into that, and he starts to play up the Christopher Walkenness. But in the dead zone, you know, like in like a, a lead part in a, like a studio horror movie, he's playing an English teacher at the start of the film. And, you know, he's he's like a normal guy. He's not like sort of like a, a, a like too quirky guy. Interestingly, the character's name is Johnny Smith, which is like, I guess, deliberately the most generic name. Like John Smith is like the kind of thing that people use as a pseudonym in hotels. when <laughs> They're trying to go under an assumed name. The interesting thing to me as well is that the premise of the dead zone, the idea that you could shake someone's hand and you could see into the future and then you're left with a choice of what do I do? For example, in this movie, Christopher Walken's teacher shakes the hand of presidential candidate Greg Stilson. And then in that moment of seeing into the future is then aware that Greg Stilson is going to start World War III and essentially kill everybody on the planet. And like, what do you do? It's sort of then at that point, it becomes like the reverse of that kind of um, idea of like, if you could go back in time, would you kill Hitler as a baby? Would you kill a baby? If it was Adolf Hitler, could you do it? And in a way, like sort of the dead zone flips around the other way is if you knew somebody was going to be a mass murderer is going to commit genocide on a major level that hadn't done it yet, would you take him out? That's basically what the end of the movie is, is that Christopher Walken decides that he has to assassinate Greg Stilson to save the world. I couldn't stop thinking about the dead zone when Trump was on his campaign <laughs> in 2015. And Stephen King, who is on Twitter and is very political, kept getting asked about the character of Greg Stilson. Because for a lot of people, Martin Sheen's character in The Dead Zone is like a proto-Trump. 
And the ending of the Dead Zone, spoiler alert, I don't want to ruin the movie, is that <clears throat> Christopher Walken fails in his assassination attempt, but Greg Stilson, in an attempt to sort of um, stop being shot at, uses a child as a human shield and a photographer gets a photo of like Greg Stilson holding up a child as a human shield so that the kid will get shot before him. And that photo is in the papers and that ruins his career. So Christopher Walken's Johnny Smith does not get to assassinate the presidential candidate, but he does, through his intervention, end his career. It's a brilliant ending. But here's the thing. I wouldn't put that past Trump. Do you think Trump, like if he was like sort of if a sniper was there, wouldn't hold up like Jared or Ivanka in front of him as a human shield? Of course he would. Donald Jr. is like toast. If Trump had used a kid as a human shield during the campaign, you would have like Sean Hannity defending it the next night on Fox News. That's for sure. Wouldn't you do the same? If I had a sniper shooting at me, would I use a a, a child to stop me being shot? Sure I would. And anybody who doesn't say that is a liar. The ending in The Dead Zone evokes both the Manchurian Candidate and the great paranoid thrillers of the 70s, particularly the Parallax View. I love the Parallax View, the um, Alan J. Pecula, um paranoid thriller, probably that the paranoid thriller. Like, because the great thing about the Parallax View is the conspiracy is so deep, you're not entirely sure where it's coming from. Like, it, it's not entirely clear whether the assassin's on the left or the right or or nowhere. They're so, like, uh, they seem like they're above politics. That's the thing that's really great about that film is it sort of crystallizes all of the kind of conspiracy theory around President Kennedy's assassination and puts it into that movie, but without ever giving you an idea of solving the mystery. Who is behind this? What do they ultimately want? Warren Beatty, the journalist, uncovers this operation to brainwash people into being assassins. However, the film that I do think of when I think of The Dead Zone is actually the film that was made before President Kennedy was assassinated, which is John Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate. Because to me, the ending of The Manchurian Candidate is very close to the dead zone and and clearly like, I think, an influence on Stephen King and probably Cronenberg as well. There are a couple of films that were made just prior to President Kennedy being assassinated that were both then taken off the shelves for a while or it was difficult to find them because they seemed to be too close to the bone. And ironically, they both feature Frank Sinatra. (laughs) So I think Frank Sinatra didn't want to be seen as like sort of something that was like, obviously he's a family entertainer as well. And he's in two movies that are very similar to President Kennedy's assassination. One is The Manchurian Candidate and the other one is called Suddenly. When suddenly he plays the sniper who's there to sort of take out a politician. So in the wake of uh, President Kennedy's assassination, by all accounts, Frank Sinatra had these two films taken out of circulation for many, many years. Were you one of those people who went back and watched a bunch of infection movies when COVID-19 broke out? I remember seeing Contagion opening weekend at the Arclight Hollywood 
in 2011 and I was with Simon Pegg because we were in LA writing the first draft of The World's End. And um, the funny thing is about that is that Simon Pegg is godfather to one of Gwyneth Paltrow's kids. (laughs) He's actually godfather to Apple. So it's quite funny sitting next to Simon Pegg watching Gwyneth Paltrow's scalp get peeled back like it was a banana, which is a very like upsetting image in that movie. The thing about Contagion is that it's incredibly plausible and would come to be very prophetic because Scott Burns, the writer, consulted with the World Health Organization and Larry Brilliant, the man who is the kind of like the sort of the expert on a potential pandemic. So I remember watching Contagion in 2011 and I remember joking afterwards to Simon as we left the cinema that the scariest thing in the movie was a man behind me sneezing. Because <laughs> during that movie, somebody like sneezed and you think, fuck, you got to get the fuck out of here. Now, of course, like at the time when that movie came out, it did pretty good, that movie. But I think for some people, maybe it was like almost like too real world. It was like sort of like a not even a what if it was like a when, <laughs> like, when is this going to happen? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And for some people, I think that that film was probably a bit too kind of like um, ominous and scary to enjoy in the way that you might enjoy a zombie movie or Independence Day. So then, cut to, like, 2020, everybody starts watching Contagion. And I watch it for a second time with my girlfriend who's never seen it. And then, like, you're, like, stunned by how close to the bone it is. It's like, ah, I see. The virus starts in Asia because a, like, bat has, like, dropped kind of like an infected piece of banana into kind of like a pigsty. And then the pig is eating it. And then the pig is served up in a restaurant. And then the person who eats the pig has the virus. Day one, patient zero. It's like, mm, this is a bit close to home. And then I think a lot of people watched that movie at the start of the pandemic as a guidebook of, like, how bad is it going to be? <laughs> what do we do next? And in the UK, uh, fucking, like... <laughs> supposed like health secretary matt hancock said that he watched like contagion as like a how-to guide which is like well the fact that you don't know what to do and have to watch a movie is pretty terrifying in itself i mean i think the movie is really good and there's uh like a lot of like great movies like that it's slightly ahead of the curve jude law's character who's like the whistleblower but also the villain in some regards is not dissimilar to like a lot of the kind of, you know, semi-crackpot kind of provocateur kind of like journalists out there who are like both a blessing and a curse. There's just a lot of stuff in that film that's like really on the money. I think what Steven Soderbergh does really well is it's like he takes the disaster movie from the 70s. So in the 70s, you had a lot of disaster movies with star-studded casts like the airport movies, Towering Inferno, Poseidon Adventure... And then you start to get to some of the later trashier ones like The Swarm and When Time Ran Out. Cassandra Crossing, one of my favorites. Cassandra Crossing, which literally has a scene where terrorists from an animal lab who have the virus that's going to wipe everybody out on screen, when they break onto this train, one of the like animal liberation like sort of uh, people who has this virus washes his face near some food 
And I remember this vividly. I saw this film when I was a kid that the virus has its own music cue. And the virus cue is like tingly music. So in that movie, <laughs> the animal liberation person like is washing his face and you hear this like, which is the sound of the virus transporting itself from his face to that food. And when it gets into the food, everybody else gets it. So for the rest of the movie, when the virus is getting around, you hear this like, now, the thing is, is that I'm not a germaphobe like Howard Hughes or Howie Mandel. <laughs> but when I have to shake somebody's sweaty hand, people at Comic-Con, you should really wash your hands more regularly. Uh, and sometimes I've been the one with the sweaty hand. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm innocent. Sometimes I've been Mr. Sweaty Hand. But if you shake somebody's hand and it's sweaty, and believe me, after the pandemic, nobody is going to be shaking hands for a long time. But if you shake a sweaty hand in my head... I hear the cue from the Cassandra Crossing. Anyway, cut to several years later, Steven Soderbergh makes Contagion. Contagion is star-studded. It has an international cast of stars. But what Steven Soderbergh does in a brilliant way is he makes like a film that's like reportage, set kind of over like a year period. And I think what he does brilliantly is he uses stars to show you that nobody is safe. It's a really clever way of doing it. It's like, why are there so many stars in Contagion? Is it's like, well, some of the biggest stars in the movie are not going to make it. Gwyneth Paltrow, like, dead in 20 minutes. Kate Winslet, like, the good doctor who's doing her best to kind of stop the virus. She gets the virus. She dies a lonely death. Like, it's really, like, clever because it kind of shows you that, like, nobody is safe. And and I think that's the thing is, like, what this last year has taught us is that the way the virus works and how it affects different people is seemingly entirely at random. And I think sort of people who are kind of, uh, I'm young and healthy and, like, it's not going to affect me. But then, like, it affects people who expect it the least. I have a colleague who has had long COVID for like over a year and doesn't know whether their life will ever be the same again. And they're somebody that like 14 months ago I last saw and they were like healthy and spry and, and now they're like seemingly permanently affected by it. What that film shows brilliantly is that some people are immune. Matt Damon's character is immune to the virus and yet his wife is dead. I think one of the best scenes in the movie, and it's a brilliant piece of acting, it's a brilliant moment and both like incredibly sad but very plausible, is when Matt Damon is in hospital and is informed of his wife's death. And he doesn't hear it. He can't process it. And when he's told that his wife is dead, Matt Damon looks around and says, wait, can I see her? Like sort of, can I talk to her? It's like, She's dead. He can't process that she's not there, the person that he saw that day and later in the day she's dead. I think there's a brilliant bit of acting, the way that he reacts and is like listening to the doctor and says, well, can I go in and talk to her? No, she's dead, like I just told you. That film is full of brilliant moments like that. And I think what's brilliant about it is that like it's um, in the same way that the virus is, is the virus doesn't pick favourites. And the virus is like completely unemotional. Is like, there's no way of the virus saying, I'm sorry to do this to you, but you're going to die. Steven Soderbergh peoples the film with very famous actors and says, dead, alive, dead, alive, dead, alive, dead, alive. 
just because Kate Winslet's a big name doesn't mean she's going to make it. It's a brilliant way to look at it because it's like you kind of think, I'm going to be okay. So my family's going to be okay. Oh, wait, my brother's dead? How is that possible? How can I be immune and him not? I think it's a, a really brilliant film. And I'm not surprised that a lot of people watched it like either for the first time or like me a second time around, like slack jawed with horror of like, oh shit, <laughs> here we go. Shifting gears, let's talk about horror sequels. You know, there's not like that many like horror sequels that work. Like, and the ones that do, I think, manage to sort of make the original premise fresh. So I think like one of the best horror sci-fi sequels of all time is Aliens, because James Cameron comes up with a way to extend the story. At the end of the first one, Sigourney Weaver's Ripley is the last survivor. She gets back to Earth. Cut to eight years later, there's been another incident in space. Like Ripley is the only survivor of the previous incident. Therefore, they want her to go into space as the expert to help. It's a great premise. Then after that, in Alien 3 and subsequent ones, Ripley sort of starts to revert to how she is in the first one. But it's a brilliant premise in terms of like the first film is essentially trying to escape the xenomorph. And the second film is going back to kill the xenomorph. And there's a great story that James Cameron, apparently, when he pitched the film to Fox and maybe producers David Geiler and Walter Hill, went into the meeting and wrote on a whiteboard, Alien, and then added at the end, S, Aliens, and then put the, the, the stripes through to make it look like a dollar sign. <laughs> it's like... Alien plus S, plural, aliens, means dollars. And apparently that was the that was the whole extent of the pitch, which is pretty genius. That is an amazing sequel because it manages to kind of like expand on the story and give Ripley something different to do than she did in the first one. A lot of other horror sequels don't have much on their mind other than just repeating the same thing. So for the most part, a Halloween sequel or a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel or a Friday the 13th sequel, it's sort of like different variations on the same thing. The Friday the 13th films, I guess, switch it up because like Jason is not the baddie in the first one and he becomes the killer in the second one. But then from the second one onwards, it's basically the same thing. It's like Jason Voorhees is going to kill people and then the final girl or final kid sometimes is going to kill Jason. And that's pretty much how they go. Halloween, they're pretty much versions of the same thing. I think Jamie Lee Curtis in the Halloween films has, has killed Michael Myers twice. <laughs> like when, when it came to the recent one, I was thinking... I'm pretty sure that Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, like, sort of Laurie Strode, chopped Michael Myers' head off at the end of H20. <laughs> like, but no, he's back. He's back in Halloween 2018. I liked the kind of the um, David Gordon Green one. I thought it was, like, the best one since the original Halloween. But if I'm completely honest, and apologies to Rob Zombie and apologies to David Gordon Green. There are some films where I wish like they ended with the first one because sometimes they have brilliant endings that are tainted by sequels. To me, 1978's Halloween has the perfect ending. 
is that like the killer is dead or is he? The body was there and now the body is not. And then the camera cut, cuts around Haddonfield, all these empty houses and the music starts up. And so for me, that's like the myth of the boogeyman is like, whatever you do, the boogeyman is still out there. Halloween 2, it's like, we're going to pick up 15 minutes later and Laurie Strode's going to hospital. It's like, eh, I'm less interested. I like the ending of the first one. I like the ending of the first Halloween better than I do anything in any of the subsequent movies. That said, there's things about the recent 2018 Halloween that I like. I love the fact they brought back Nick Castle, the original actor to play the shape in the asylum scenes at the start. I thought that was really great. And I like the way that they reversed Laurie Strode's character. I thought that was really good. Yeah, I like the way Jamie Lee Curtis played Laurie Strode in the 2018 Halloween. You know, for the most part, though, like horror sequels, they have to find a way to kind of do the same thing again. Then there are exceptions to that. Like the Nightmare on Elm Street films, I think sort of, um, they sometimes kind of like find a way to reinvent the wheel in a really fun way. And sometimes they're just kind of like spinning their wheels. For me, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, it's like number one is great. Number two is interesting, but doesn't quite work, but it's got interesting things about it. Number three is great. Number three is like then the quintessential. If James Bond didn't really crystallize itself until Goldfinger, Nightmare on Elm Street, like sort of Nightmare on Street 3, the Dream Warriors is the peak of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And then four, five, six, like I could take it or leave it. And then Wes Craven's new nightmare, number seven, is really interesting. And interesting that it's like the precursor to Wes Craven's scream. It sort of does a very meta thing with the seventh film, Wes Craven's new nightmare. It's not even called A Nightmare on Elm Street. The idea of it being shot on the set of A Nightmare on Elm Street film in a world where Wes Craven... And like Bob Shay from New Line and Robert Englund and Heather Langenkamp all exist as characters. That's quite interesting. And I remember seeing that film at the cinema and thinking that it was like extremely bold and maybe like destined to sort of like lose as many fans as it gains. You know, that there'll be like a contingent of the Freddy fans watching New Nightmare but going like, what? Why has this turned into something like um, Francois Truffaut's Day for Night? But I really like it. It's an interesting movie. How do you feel about Gremlins 2, the new batch, as a sequel? Gremlins 2 is an interesting sequel because Gremlins 2 seems like, in the most glorious way possible, a filmmaker biting the hand that feeds him. From what I gather, (laughs) Joe Dante had no interest in doing a Gremlin sequel. And I guess the kind of the requests from the studio and the kind of the clamor for there to be a sequel became so loud that he eventually like relented. But I think he did it on his own terms. I can only imagine that Gremlins 2 The New Batch was made when Joe Dante said, "Okay, far now, I'll make it, but I, I have final cut. And I want to do what I want to do. Gremlins had opened in 1984. Joe Dante had gone on to do a number of other films in between. Tons of like lower budget genre films had ripped off Gremlins. Critters, Munchies, Ghoulies, Spookies. A lot of films with uh, IES at the end. 
but nothing's quite like Gremlins. But Gremlins is like a Rolls Royce of a monster movie. So like brilliantly written, so brilliantly made, incredible creature effects by Chris Wallace. And just a, a perfect script by Chris Columbus. Like Gremlins to me is just like, it really stands up now. And but here's the thing is that Gremlins, it resolves itself at the end. And in a way, in Gremlins 1, you've sort of seen everything there is to really know about Gremlins. This is what happens when it goes wrong. This is how you can save the day. And at the end of the film, the Mogwai is taken back because Billy's not ready to look after this pet and is not responsible enough to sort of like uh, look after a Mogwai. Basically, the moral of the story is don't own a pet until you can look after a pet. It's literally like the premise of the movie is that a dog is not just for Christmas. So at the end of the movie, like the mysterious Chinese man comes back to take the Mogwai away and Billy doesn't have Gizmo anymore. So with all that in mind, Gremlins 2 relocates to New York and Gremlins 2 goes into completely different territory where Joe Dante says, listen, okay, I'll make a Gremlins sequel A, if, like, you pay me, and B, if you leave me alone. And then the resulting film is more like a Looney Tunes cartoon than it is like the original Gremlins. Gremlins 2, the movie, opens with the Warner Brothers logo and then a Looney Tunes sequence with Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny themselves. Not a short in front of the movie. This is the opening to the movie. I remember when I saw Gremlins 2, I was... 16 in 1990 and I loved Gremlins so much and I really like Gremlins too but I even in the room as it was playing you got the feeling that some people felt like wait what is this because it's sort of it is like a meta version of Gremlins where it's like it's basically the plot of Gremlins in Trump Tower John Glover is playing Donald Trump Daniel Clamp, the name of the character in Gremlins 2, is actually a lot nicer than the real Donald Trump and, in fact, gets a a moment to redeem himself at the end of the movie. Being in Clamp Tower, which is like a futuristic sort of New York skyscraper, just gives Joe Dante license to run riot. There's a genetics lab in the tower. There's a TV station in the tower. It's just open season on like everything like science, television, consumerism, jokes about merchandise. I heard a story from Joe Dante that like the producers of Gremlins 2 or maybe even Spielberg himself was like not happy with the idea that they were making fun of the Gremlins merchandise. I mean, but there is that feeling throughout the whole film that it's like biting the hand that feeds it. Even though it has a lot of like super fans and a lot of people that feel like Gremlins 2 is the superior movie, I'm sure there are other people who feel like if they really love Gremlins and now they're watching a film that makes fun of Gremlins, that somehow it's like, oh, I like Gremlins. Why are you so mad at yourself? I think a lot of that is maybe like Joe Dante is doing the film somewhat reluctantly and uh, he thinks, right, if I do a Gremlins sequel, I'm going to do the Gremlins sequel that nobody can top. And to this day, there's never been a Gremlins 3 because it feels like Gremlins 2 has scorched the earth. So I think what happened with Gremlins 2 is Chris Wallace, who designed the creature effects for Gremlins, by this point was making other movies. He'd done The Fly and then he was directing The Fly 2 and was not available for Gremlins. And maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, really didn't want to do a Gremlins sequel because... By all accounts, the puppet effects on the first Gremlins were such a chore and so difficult to do 
I'm sure like Chris Wallace was like, I would not wish the Gremlin sequel on my worst enemy. So Joe Dante gets Rick Baker in to do the Gremlins. But Rick Baker says, quite rightly, I don't want to just do the same Gremlins as the first one. I'll do it if we can think up new Gremlins. And then cut to like Spider Gremlin and Electricity Gremlin, the Tony Randall brainy Gremlin. So this is the thing where the, the, the movie starts to go completely off the wall. And like, I mean, I really love it because there's so many, it's so chock-a-block full of sight gags. And it really is like somewhere between what Joe Dante did in the first film and, and Joe Dante's earlier films like Hollywood Boulevard and Piranha, which are like chock full of like funny gags. It's sort of weirdly in that same spirit of just go for broke silliness. Like one of my favorite gags in Gremlins 2 is when the back gremlin flies out of the lab and the camera pans over to the wall and the bat gremlin has left the perfect bat symbol from Tim Burton's Batman. And that is like a killer gag. I'm sure some people in the audience are watching that movie like with their popcorn in their hand thinking, what is happening? Especially at the moment where the film breaks down and uh, an audience member goes out to find Paul Bartel, the manager, who then gets Hulk Hogan to talk to the camera and get the gremlins to put the film back on. This is in like a horror sequel. Like, so at this point, like Gremlins 2 has sort of gone off road. And I'm sure there's an element where Warner Brothers watched the finished film and said, huh, okay, yeah. How do we cut a trailer together that makes it look more like the first Gremlins? And that said, it's like glorious. and, And over the years has grown its own like cult. And I admire everything about Joe Dante's, like, scorched earth (laughs) approach to doing a sequel. Speaking of Scorched Earth, what inspired your apocalypse film, The World's End? I guess The World's End, the reason that we wanted to make it is we felt that a lot of the best sci-fi films are using something in politics or in culture or in society as a metaphor. You know, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is a sci-fi film, but it's really like a Trojan horse to be a political film. The genius of the first Invasion of the Body Snatchers is that it can be interpreted as anti-communist and it can be interpreted as anti-McCarthy witch hunts. I think the latter is what it's really doing, but on paper, so as not to get them in trouble with the um, anti-American like committee, they say, oh, it's about the communists, it's about the threat of communism and it's essentially about the Russians, but really it's actually about the McCarthy witch hunts. So that's a really clever thing is that the invasion of the body snatchers is like a double whammy. The World's End, we wanted to make an alien robot invasion movie, but for it to be something that was more personal. And one of the inspirations for The World's End was the idea of, like, you can never go home again. My hometown is in the West Country in England. And when I was there as an 18-year-old, just before I left for college, I felt, naively, I felt you feel like you're the king of the world. Like, kids who are, like, 18 and they're drinking in the pubs and they're going out every night, it's like, we rule this town. 
you know, like we're sort of in the pubs every night and like we're the kings of this kind of domain. And then you maybe you go away to the big city or you go to college and then like maybe you come back at like the, like Easter and see your friends again. Maybe you come back at Christmas and see your parents and family. And then like over the years, like you go back less and less. Maybe there's a year where you don't come back for Christmas because you're traveling or whatever. And I remember saying that when I used to go back to my hometown, with each successive year, it was like they didn't know who I was anymore. Maybe the first year I went back, I saw kids who were from the year below me and they remember me. The next year, less of them. Next year, even less. The next year, people that I was at school with don't recognize me. And then it's, a, it's an odd feeling like you go back and you're a stranger in your hometown. And I remember saying to one of my friends, he said, hey, are you going back to Wells, which is my hometown, Wells in Somerset? You going back to Wells for Christmas? And I said, you know what? I might skip it this year. Every time I go back, it feels like invasion of the body snatchers. It's like I'm home, but the place has changed. And then that was just a little germ of a thing that stuck in my head. And then it felt like, well, what if we did a film where it was about ostensibly people trying to recapture their youth by going back to their hometown and restaging like a pub crawl that they did when they were teenagers. And in the case of Simon Pegg's character, who's a functioning alcoholic, he is like reuniting with friends who he's pissed off and not seen for like sort of years because this night out was the last time that he had a success He's trying to recapture a former glory that maybe wasn't even a glory at the time. The other four friends have all moved on. They've got lives and careers and wives and children. But Simon Pegg's character, Gary King, is trying to trade on former glories. And his idea is almost like to blackmail his friends into going back with him so he can be kind of like sort of king of the castle once more and they'll rule this town once more and they'll finish this fable pub crawl if it kills them, and then. <laughs> and then it's like, you realise that, like, nobody remembers them in the town. People that they went to school with have no recollection of them, and it's like they're strangers. And then it becomes clear in a very Quatermass, John Wyndham, Invasion of the Body Snatchers way that there is actually a robot invasion afoot. And the reason that nobody remembers them is because these are not the same people. These are facsimiles of people that were in this town. And this is the start of a major invasion by an alien super intelligence. But what our idea was with The World's End is, is maybe in another genre movie, at that like sort of end of act one point, start of act two, a coming of age, or in this case, like a midlife crisis movie, would morph into like the alien invasion drama. But in The World's End, our idea was, how can we keep the pub crawl going <laughs> for the whole movie? That Gary King's character is such a malignant narcissist that even in the face of an alien invasion, he still wants to finish the pub crawl. That's basically the plot of The World's End. And we had a lot of fun writing it and making it. And I'm very proud of that movie. As dark as it gets, and in a way, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz are both personal in different weird ways for me and Simon, but The World's End is the most personal. And I think sort of Simon, as he's later sort of admitted himself, is playing like the worst aspects of himself in The World's End. And I think it's his greatest performance. 
talk a bit about Train to Busan. When we made Shaun of the Dead in 2004, there was no question about it. The zombies in Shaun of the Dead were slow zombies. Me and Simon are a big fan of the slow zombie. Because to me, the slow zombie is more nightmarish than the fast zombie. Because a slow zombie, you can outrun it, but you can never fully escape. It's like lava. The lava is just going to keep coming. And there's something about the slow zombie that, for me, makes the zombie movie more nightmarish. It's like, yes, you can outrun them, but you cannot outrun them forever. They are going to get you. Death is inevitable. As much as death is inevitable to us all, the zombie is eventually going to get you, you know, no matter how slow it is. It creates this kind of like nightmare logic. It's like you're running on the spot in a zombie film. And that to me is a very powerful thing because we all have those dreams where you're trying to run away from something and you can't because you're running on the spot. It's like you're running in treacle. I think one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, I think it's Nightmare on Elm Street 3, literally has that image of somebody's like trying to run up some stairs, but they can't because like, because it's like sticky, like treacle and they're stuck. And it's a similar thing with zombie movies is you can't outrun the slow zombies. You can outrun them in person, but you cannot outrun them in theory because they're going to come and get you. The fast zombies, like, which I think originated in Umberto Lenzi's Nightmare City, then became a thing like sort of in the 21st century. First, I think really with 28 Days Later. 28 Days Later is not really a traditional zombie movie, but Alex Garland is playing on elements from... Nightmare City, John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids, the George Romero zombie films. And it's really a virus movie more than a zombie movie. And they're not called zombies. They're called the infected because they have this virus that makes them supercharged. But, you know, the, the, the sort of the byword after 28 Days Later was fast zombies. And fast zombies are sort of an interesting thing in terms of it makes it very intense. I prefer, like I said, the more nightmarish quality of the slow zombie. Then when things got kind of permanently uh, confused is that Zack Snyder remakes George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, but he like sort of um, hopped up on, on Red Bull, um, is, has no time for slow zombies in the Dawn of the Dead remake. So they're fast zombies. So they take the fast zombies from 28 Days Later and Nightmare City and Dawn of the Dead now has fast zombies. So when we make Shaun of the Dead which is still in the kind of first wave of the 300 zombie films a year (laughs) ever since. But I feel like in the 21st century, there'd been a big break from zombie movies. In the 90s, there were very few zombie movies. And me and Simon Pegg always believed that what killed off the zombie movie was John Landis's video for Michael Jackson's Thriller, which indelibly had these incredible zombies designed by Rick Baker. The makeup is just perfect, including Michael Jackson himself. But then the zombies do the dance. And then that is an image that is like sort of indelible. People do it in weddings to this day. It's like a thing, the zombie dance from Thriller. But it sort of made zombies funny or at least kind of comical or at least kind of like not scary. It's like they're sort of cool dancing around. So then post-Thriller, there are some zombie films in the 80s, but it starts to die off because... Michael Jackson has put the most famous zombie image on the screen. The 90s is relatively free of zombie movies. There's Return of the Living Dead Part 3. There's Della Morte Della Moore, like AKA Cemetery Man. 
There's Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, which is again goes more into sort of rabid territory. But there's not many slow zombie films. And then in the 21st century, there's Resident Evil. The game has kind of slow Romero zombies. 28 Days Later has fast zombies. Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake has fast zombies. But when me and Simon wrote Shaun of the Dead, it's like slow zombies, slow zombies till we die. We wanted to make a film in the spirit of a George Romero film. So they had to go George Romero speed. Then zombie films after that, like especially then when they make The Walking Dead like 10 years ago, then like there's absolutely tons and tons and tons of zombie films. And for the most part, I don't really watch a lot of zombie films because in that weird way, making Shaun of the Dead, I was obsessed with zombie movies, but making Shaun of the Dead cured me of of that obsession. I like equate making Shaun of the Dead to the idea of I like chocolate cake. Okay, now I'm going to make a chocolate cake. Okay, now I'm sick of chocolate cake. <laughs> like So it's like, I don't want to eat chocolate cake ever again. There are very few exceptions. So like, I saw like The Walking Dead, the TV show. I saw World War Z, the, the film, which had vast zombies, which I was like, I could take it or leave it. I mean, it's a well-made movie and there's some really scary bits in it. But the fast zombies done mass CGI, I kind of like, yeah, sure. It looks kind of cool, but I'm not particularly invested in it and then there are there are a lot of zombie movies that people say hey have you seen blah blah i say no actually i haven't and i maybe i never will or not anytime soon because i'm like done with zombies there are a few like zombie movies that i would make an exception for and they're both like um not english language films one was the spanish film wreck which i thought was fantastic and i really loved wreck and that was like a zombie film that i had time for and i like i really like this it's really imaginative it's brilliantly made so wreck was the first one and then the next zombie film that i really loved enough to put my quote on the poster was the south korean movie train to busan which is basically like zombies on a train now the brilliance of train to busan which has fast zombies, um, and I'll give it a pass because it's a masterpiece. And it's like a brilliant zombie movie and deserves to be in the top 10 zombie movies of all time. The brilliance of Train to Busan is like the elevator pitch is like zombies on a train. So 20 minutes into Train to Busan, you get that zombies on a train set piece, and it's amazing, and it's so exciting And then you think 20 minutes in, it's like, wait, if there's already been zombies on a train, what is the rest of the film going to do? And then that film keeps topping itself. That film is like up there with Die Hard. It's like a absolute masterclass in how to wring every bit of tension and action out of a confined space. It's really brilliant. But it's brilliant in terms of it stays true to its premise. I always shock people with the list of zombie films made since Shaun of the Dead that I have not seen and don't have any plans to see anytime soon. But my two exceptions to that and ones that I would say give my massive stamp of approval to would be Wreck and Train to Passant. And finally, I know you wanted to say one more thing about Halloween. The interesting thing about Halloween and the Halloween like sequels is that I really admire the sort of the world building in the Halloween sequels, but nothing is as scary as one line, in fact, one word in the first Halloween. 
So we've had like Halloween sequels that have expanded the mythos of Michael Myers and Rob Zombie made two, like two movies where like you're sort of showing the origin story of Michael Myers and and really like sort of imaginatively expanded and, you know, kind of a really interesting way of giving him some kind of mythos beyond what he is in the first film, which is this kind of unknowable evil force. You don't know exactly what made him this way and you don't know whether he can ever be cured and you'll and you'll never find out in the first movie but the thing to me is that for all of the world building in subsequent halloween sequels all of the rest of the subsequent series the two remakes nothing is as spooky as one bit in the first one and that is the end of the prologue where you see like a killer through like point of view and then you know like it murders like a girl and then as the camera goes out onto the front lawn, a car pulls up and two middle-class parents come out and look at the camera and say, Michael? Question mark. And pull the mask off. And it's a little boy, like a blonde little cute boy with a knife in his hand. And that is all that you have to go on. Something about the fact that the parents are sort of like relatively affluent makes it a bit scarier. Like he's not like a little redneck kid. He's a little, like, upper-middle-class kid. In terms of, like, telling you more with less, the slightly kind of, like, affluent parent saying, Michael? Question mark. Is more intriguing and scary to me than the next eight movies. Sorry, guys. (laughs) That's it. It's about as contentious as I get today. And that was writer-producer-director Edgar Wright. Join us next time for another triple threat, Mike Flanagan. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayenga. Produced by Kurt Sayenga. Engineered by Chris Heckman with music by Joseph Bashara. For Oddity, Jessica Bastilos and Lacey Oglevoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the third season of the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer, Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Marco Brazis, Kelly Nash, Chris Powers, and Clara Zwerbel at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror, Uncut. Uncut.